Hey, I'm just telling you, you have scripture reading on Sunday nights as we go through Judges. Gird up your loins like a man. <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first chapter of Judges tonight, the second, uh, the second message in this series that we're going to do on Sunday nights. Now, next Sunday night, we're going to take a break from Judges, even though we're two weeks into it, because the, uh, the children's homes are going to be here and making some presentations. So uh, that's going to be kind of a, an extended presentation time this next Sunday night. We're not going to have a message uh, uh, and kind of a short devotional time with these, uh, these leaders from uh, the children's home. So be here this next week to hear about how we're affecting children's, and, uh, children's lives and families through these, through these homes. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at the first chapter again of, of Judges and... Uh, We're going to begin with a word of prayer. Father, the the, the greatness of of Your presence is is not lost on us every time we read the Old Testament. And we read of Your faithfulness and Your perseverance with people that sometimes were not very obedient and much of the time were not very trusting or very faithful to You. And so our prayer tonight, Father, is that we learn from this. That spiritually and Faithfully speaking, we go to school on their lives and, and glean the lessons from the, the mistakes that they have made in, in the steps that they were given in following you and the direction that their lives were to take as you pointed them towards a, a promised land and a land of rest. So give us tonight, Father, we pray it in the name of Jesus, eyes to see and ears to hear. For we seek in this time and in this land to be Your people. Full of, full of beauty and full of the blessings that You have given us. Full of peace and full of joy in living out the ramifications of discipleship. Give us these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Preacher, now retired by the name of Bob Russell, wrote a book in which he tells the story of uh, some years ago, when they were visiting their son Rusty and his family, uh, they discovered that uh, Rusty had bought a brand new foreign sports car, but he was a little bit frustrated with it because he couldn't figure out, it was, I mean, it was straight from Europe, could not figure out how to change it from kilometers into miles. Well, later in the evening, Rusty suggested that, that he and his family, along with his his uh, his mother and father go to the ice cream store, but because of the large family, they would have to take two cars. Rusty tells his dad, Bob, why don't you and mom follow us in the car and we'll show you how to get to the ice cream place. So they, they take off, and uh, one of the things that happens is because he could not tell how fast he was going because he was, he was going in kilometers, he's actually speeding, and his father, Bob, the preacher, is following behind him, speeding as well. So they're going down the road. Bob doesn't think he's speeding. It doesn't seem like he's speeding. But all of a sudden, there are these lights that show up behind him. Pulls over Bob and and Rusty. He first gets out of the car and walks over to Bob's car and says, Hey, I'm pulling you over for speeding, but I'm going up to the front car first to deal with that guy. And so he gets up there. Rusty, the son, is a a little discombobulated uh, a little bit. And the officer goes, Did you know that you were speeding? And Rusty says, and this is a quote, Officer, I know this is going to sound like a line, but this is the first day I've driven this car, 
I can't figure out how to change it from kilometers to miles, so I had no idea how fast I was going. The guy behind me is my dad. He doesn't know what he's doing either. <laughs> the, the moral of that story is the flow of traffic is not always a safe place. Or the moral of the story could be the pack doesn't always know what it's doing. There's a website called despair.com that every once in a while uh, uh, I, I read uh, some of the stuff on it. And they have uh, kind of a moral to this story as well when it comes working in groups. It says that none of us are as, is as dumb as all of us. Which is uh, uh, sort of a cynical way at looking at what we're getting into with the first chapter of Judges. The initial lessons in the book of Judges is that all of Israel is just sort of untethered when it comes to obeying God's will. Judges 1 begins with these words. After the death of Joshua. That's how the book begins. Significant words in Judges chapter 1 and verse 1. Judges as a book begins with a glance back over the shoulder. It begins with a well-known Hebrew word, Vayahi, which uh, translates into a lot of words, and so it happened or it came about. Now that's significant because as you read this at the beginning of Judges, it connects Judges with the book of Joshua's. Joshua. The assumption then is that you know about the achievements of Joshua. This gives the book of Judges a context. It should be read, Judges should be read in light of the book of Joshua. Now, again, we know who Joshua is. Joshua, along with Caleb, they're the only ones who survived out of that generation that failed to trust God at Kadesh Barnea back in Numbers 13 and 14 as they were initially approaching from the south end the promised land and were getting ready to go into it. Everyone else around them on that day that expressed doubt in God faithlessness in God, even saying, going to the extent of faithlessness and saying, you know what? We don't trust God at all. God does not have our best, uh, our, our best uh, in, uh, uh, purposes at heart. We need to turn around and go back to Egypt. And everyone around them on that day that expressed that kind of sentiment fell in the desert at some point as they wandered for 40 years. Joshua becomes Moses' successor who will lead the people into the, uh, into the promised land at the end of those 40 years of wandering. He is going to be the one that brings them into the gate of the promised land. And in the book of Joshua, there are three things that continually are emphasized and what we need to keep in mind as we read Judges. In Joshua, it is about the dimensions of the land. Israel is moving into a large and gigantic piece of real estate. It's going to be a big, big blessing. And so you read in verses 3 and 4 of Joshua chapter 1, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. God is saying this promised land is huge. It's a gigantic piece of real estate, but how are they going to take it? That leads to the second thing that's emphasized, and that is the path of success. How are they going to take this land? By trusting in God. How are they going to possess the, 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 the real estate? It's by following and being obedient and faithful to God. Joshua chapter 1 again, beginning in verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. 
Be careful to obey all the law My servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. That you may be, what? Successful. Wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate. Circle that word in your Bibles. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and what? Prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That word uh, meditation that leads to success is a pretty important word. I want you to circle it in your Bibles. It, it, to meditate means more than just knowledge. More than just gaining knowledge. It's the process when you meditate on something. It's the process of pulling your entire life into a truth. If you meditate on a truth about God regarding salvation, it can lead to worship. If you meditate on a truth where, uh, about God regarding forgiveness, then it leads to peace. If you meditate on a truth about God's faithfulness, about how He always stands by His Word, while He always comes through with His promises, then it, as you meditate on it, can make you brave and courageous. And then the third thing is remain faithfully, uh, uh, faithful solely to God. You're not to set up covenants. You're not to turn to the right or to the left. You're to stay on this path that this Word that you're meditating on will lead you to in terms of, of God. You don't set up covenants with the people of the land that will dilute the sovereignty of God in your life. So now going to the end of Joshua, Joshua in chapter 23 beginning in verse 6, be very strong, be, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Now, with the dimensions of the land being emphasized, the path of success is faithfulness to God, and you are to remain faithfully, uh, solely to God. The bottom line of Joshua, build a godly culture inherent with God's blessing to lead the surrounding nations to recognize the Creator. As you go into that land and you possess it and God begins to bless you because of your faithfulness and trust and obedience and relationship to Him, all of the nations on the outside will see all of that blessing and will want to come in. So why does Judges begin with a glance back over the shoulder to the book of Joshua? Before it goes any further, why does it remind us of Joshua? It's a reminder that God keeps His promises even when a visible human leader is not present. Now for the first time, they're without Moses and without Joshua, leading them further and deeper, drilling them deeper into the land. Now this is what brings us to the first chapter of Judges, and this is where we find Israel proceeding half-heartedly. It's against this backdrop of half-hearted discipleship in light of all of the the, the, the obedience and the faithfulness that Joshua exhibits, it's against this backdrop that Judges opens up. Now, to know and to follow God's will takes bravery and it takes courage. 
It always has. And it always will. This is why God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. At the end of the first chapter of Joshua, even the people, after hearing what God has said to Joshua as Joshua relates it back to him, they say, listen, we're going to obey, but you, Joshua, be strong and courageous. This, again, is why Joshua, at the end of his life, reminds the people that following God is wholehearted commitment. He says in chapter 24, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve whom? The Lord. But here's the thing about commitment. Commitment is not always long-lasting. Commitment is not always long-lasting. History is repeated because time brings forgetfulness. History is repeated because time brings forgetfulness. The temptation will be to fall back to conventional human wisdom, to conventional basic human instincts, to fall back to gut feelings and gut instincts. That is why spirituality, as we talked about last week, has to be continually and methodically renewed. You always have to be working somehow to press your mind and your heart and your soul into the truths of, of God's Word that, that express what His character is like in all of the universe. And so Judges 1 opens with the death of Joshua and the people of Israel inquiring of the Lord. After the death of Joshua... The Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answers, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. Sounds pretty good, does it not? They start well. The chapter opens up with the people inquiring the will of God. What shall we do? God, uh, you tell us what it is that you want us to do next. God says, Judah is to take the lead. They're to take the first step. They are to go out first and take the land. I have given the land into their hands. And immediately Judah fails. Verse 3. God has said, go, I've given. Verse 3. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. God said, go. Judah says, wait, I'll get Simeon, my brother, to help me, and then I'll help Simeon. The question is, why is Simeon necessary if God has already given the land into the hand of Judah? Judah is saying, I will obey but my way. I mean, what does that sound like? I will obey you, but it's going to be my way. What does that sound like? You ever told your daughter to clean her room and she says, yes? And you come back later and the room is still a disaster area? And you ask with a little bit of sharpness in the voice, why in the world did you not clean your room like I asked you to? And what does the daughter say? I will, but I will get to it, what? Later, Whenever. This is not obedience, but obedience through agreement compromise. 
obedience through agreement compromise. The daughter is saying, I really don't want to make my room, but I will as long as it's on my time schedule and when I feel like it. The Lord is faithful. But Judah's waning commitment is beginning to show. There's this weird little story right there at the very beginning. There's this fellow that is called Adonai Bezak. Bezak is a place. Adonai uh, is the word for Lord. And it, basically, they're calling this guy the Lord of Bezak. He is defeated. His thumbs and big toes are cut off. The reason, that's a sign of complete domination and subjugation. They have cut off his thumbs and his toes. Therefore, Adonai Bezak is not going to be able to take up arms and take a stand against Israel. But there's irony here. There's irony in this account as Adonai Bezak accepts his defeat as just judgment from God. He recognizes the life that he chose to live. Which falling back into God's Word, this is something that's said over and over again. Think about Psalm 64 beginning in verse 2. Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the plots of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim cruel words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent. They shoot suddenly without fear. But God, verse 7, will shoot them with His arrows. They suddenly will be struck down. All people will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and ponder what He has done. Adonai Basic says, I have gotten from God my just deserts. But the question is, why is this story in the narrative? Why, why the story about Adonai Bezek and his thumbs and big toes being cut off as he's defeated in battle? The reason is that at the, begin, at the beginning of, of Joshua, what is the big battle? Jericho. Right there at the very beginning, as they enter into the land across the river and they set up camp, what is it that the people of Israel under Joshua face? Jericho, the biggest enemy of all, the biggest fortified city. As Judges gets ready to go into deeper uh, conquest of the land and possession of the land, they come against Adonai Bezak. He is a big deal. The text tells us that he conquered and dominated 70 kings. He's not an easy win. And he is defeated because God has given Adonai Bezek in the land, his kingdom, his, his army, into the hand of Israel, into the hand of Judah. But by the time you get to verse 19, you begin to see the cracks of half-hearted discipleship beginning to show. Verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country. They're down in the south. But they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had what? Chariots fitted with iron. And this becomes the experience of the other tribes. This comes from the text that, um, that Michael read for us just a couple of minutes ago. These folk, these tribes, were told to drive the nations out of the land. To trust God. To drive these nations out of the land, that's the will of God. They were not to do the militarily expedient thing in the ancient world, which was, if this is not a very big army, we're not really needing to, to deal with them in a military way. We'll just subjugate them and we'll enslave them as a conquered people. What is it that over and over again God said? 
drive them out of the land. Do not associate with them in such a way that it allows them and their idolatry to affect you. Do not subjugate and enslave the conquered people, but to drive them out. They were to create a nation, Israel, that trusted God and was blessed by God in the middle of nations who did not know God in order to spread that knowledge. But then we have obedience through agreement compromise. Which becomes a contagion that takes a toll in the people. And the judgment of God in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is not positive. We'll look at that next time. But the half-hearted discipleship, the half-hearted commitment to the will of God, it was obedience through agreement compromise. You want us to drive them out of the land? We'll follow you in there, but we're going to enslave them. They will do our work for us. And the cracks begin to get wider and wider and wider. But there is hope in chapter 1. And that is the hope in the faithful one in the midst of the faithless many. This brings us to Caleb, who is the example of faithfulness that steps out of the flow of traffic. That is, all of those tribes of Israel. And and that's Caleb's story, really, for all of his life. Caleb and Joshua, Joshua would not go along with the flow of traffic that said, you know what we need to do? We need to turn around and go back to Egypt because we cannot take this land that flows with milk and honey, but we're grasshoppers in the eyes of the inhabitants. We can't do it. God's not big enough to do it. We're going back to Egypt. Faithful Caleb in this first chapter becomes the flip side of the coin of that half-hearted discipleship. Caleb says in verse 12, I will give my daughter, my daughter Aksah in marriage to the man who attacks and, ca- and captures Kiriath Sefer. Now at first glance, it seems like Caleb is treating his daughter like a bonus check for the guy who exceeds uh, performance expectations. But here's the thing about Caleb. Caleb is looking for the one man who has enough faith in God to take that city. And that's the man he wants for his daughter. Othniel accepts the challenge, takes the city, marries Aksah. And Othniel, ironically, becomes the first savior judge of Israel that we're going to run again into in chapter 3. And the effect? Aksaw, who has... Uh, Aksaw is actually kind of a cute name. It's not really known. Most of the scholars think that Aksaw means bangles. That she was called bangles because she had all kinds of bracelets. This Aksaw gets her husband to ask Caleb and she receives some land from her father Caleb. And then... She goes to her father and asks for springs of water. I need a parcel of land and I need springs of water. Why is that so important? Why is that included in the story? It's because Axel's desire is to settle and enjoy the land of promise through faith. The faithfulness of Caleb right here in the middle of this, this first chapter knocks down the barriers that keep his loved ones from finding peace and rest in the land of promise. Which foreshadows another who would come many years later who would not do obedience through agreement compromise. 
This one in the future would teach his loved ones to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when push came to shove, he would pray, Not my will be done, but yours. And by trusting God, he defeated the greatest and final enemy in order to open a way for his loved ones to find peace and rest. And his was no half-hearted commitment to the will of God. The lessons of Judges 1 is that discipleship is about wholehearted following the will of God. Of meditating on His Word in such a way that those truths begin to spiral into your life. That that it issues up into worship, into thankfulness, and into peace, and into bravery, and into courage when it comes to doing God's will. And finding the promises of God inherent in every command. Ben will lead us in a song right now. It's a song of invitation. A song to... To, uh, of invitation to strengthen your resolve to do the will of God. It is a, a, a song of invitation that if you have never in your life given yourself to God wholeheartedly through faith in Christ the Son, the opportunity is to do it now by coming forward and talking to these shepherds as we all stand and praise God together. Been to Jesus for the cleansing.